Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Chris Ressa is the Executive Vice President and COO for DLC Management Corp. With his dedication to solving real estate needs for entrepreneurs and national retailers, coupled with his ability to thrive under immense pressure, Chris Ressa hasn't let the challenges impede achieving his goals. He's persistently earned his way and become an established industry influencer. No wonder he's been recognized by Chain Store Age by landing on the magazine's 10 Under 40 Stars of Rising Real Estate list. Chris joined DLC Management Corp in 2007. During his tenure, his relationships, real estate expertise, and leadership have led to numerous successful repositioning of assets. With a track record of consistently beating budgets and increasing NOI, Chris has placed a significant role in the overall growth of the organization. Now as Chief Operating Officer, Chris oversees DLC's $2.5 billion asset portfolio and is responsible for all property-level operations, including leasing, property management, construction, and marketing, on all owned and third-party management assets. Chris has a strong presence on social media, including LinkedIn, with his influencer base of over 28,900 followers. Chris's influence in the digital space expands beyond LinkedIn as he also hosts a highly acclaimed Retail Retold podcast. So Chris, welcome to the Second Command podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this is cool. I'm actually really looking forward to digging into this. The I would say like of all of the industries that I know stuff about, this is the one that I know nothing about. Commercial <laughs> real, it's, it's always, and I grew up, it's interesting, like I, I grew up next door to a family in Northern Ontario in Canada that were, um, they were big in commercial real estate and I was always very enamored with them growing up and watching the dad and the kids and their aunts and uncles and they were all like, in this big commercial real estate empire and just even over the last 30 years since I've left that city, just watching their, their growth has always been really, really intriguing to me. So how did you get involved in real estate? So personally, uh, I got involved. So came from a, you know, lower middle income family, blue collar family, no ties to real estate or commercial real estate. Um, played sports growing up and got a wrestling scholarship to Rutgers University in New Jersey and ended up wrestling there and was, you know, my wrestling career was coming to an end and I had to get into the real world to start working and I was applying for a million jobs. And one of the jobs I applied for just happened to be a corporate real estate job at the Sherwin Williams companies uh, that owns paint stores, Fortune 500 company. And so the job was really about training someone to, do real estate, how they did real estate. And I was working on their retail stores, their industrial locations, their district offices. So I got a really good lens of all facets of commercial real estate at a really young age. A lot of, you know, young professionals don't get into commercial real estate through the corporate real estate world. The biggest way that people get into commercial real estate is probably third party, which I've never really been in, um, which is, you know, brokerage where they represent a tenant or a landlord. I've only been the tenant or the landlord. I've never been the third party. Um, and, or they get into some other facet. They get into the lending world or the, you know, some big institutions, pension funds or the insurance sure. world. Sure. But rarely do you get in through the corporate real estate world. Usually they are picking people from other facets and bringing them in versus growing. Yeah. So it's a unique opportunity. 
And what I realized was I loved commercial real estate and the people who, you know, grew in that organization and made the most money. It was real simple, sold the most paint or, you know, uh, you were the manager of the store and your store did really well and you became a district manager and then you grew and real estate was a function of their business. It wasn't their business. Right. And so sure. I realized I wanted to get on the commercial real estate side and then I pivoted and started working for a, a commercial real estate owner and really learning the development business and really learning how landlords look at things. And since then, I've been working for a landlord. I'm probably the only person on the planet who's been in as many Sherwin-Williams stores as you have then or close to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was a part of a group called College Pro Painters and I was totally the leadership team, the senior leadership team of College Pro Painters. I opened the West Coast of the United States for College Pro, um, ran half of Ontario for them, knew all the, this was way, way, way back when, but yeah, Sherwin-Williams was a massive, massive partner of ours. That was a great organization. Yeah, they're great. Awesome yeah. place. Skip Lennox was a guy that we knew, but he was out of Canada. You wouldn't have known a guy named Skip Lennox, but he was the, he was- I knew a guy in Vancouver named Jack Singh. He was the DM of Vancouver because- Okay. I got all the territories that my former boss didn't want to run. So I, <laughs> I had Canada. Really? Yeah. And, and, first. You, and you got Vancouver. That was a great market. Yeah, it was a great market. Awesome. Uh, yeah, that's right. Well, I'm, I'm in Vancouver right now. I, I split my time between Vancouver and Scottsdale, Arizona. I go back and forth awesome. between both yeah, great cities. All right. So, so then how did you get involved in DLC? So I, when I went, to, I went from Sherwin-Williams to a, a New York City developer called Ashkenazi Acquisitions. I was there a short time and then I went to DLC. I was in their leasing department at DLC. So DLC is vertically integrated. They don't third party anything. We, we own it. We operate it. We run it. And that's the, and, and we try to use the platform to, to, you know, uh, increase value at the assets that we purchase or develop. And so there's a lot of groups like big institutions, banks, investment arms, things like that, that pension funds that buy real estate as an investment and they're a little more passive and they, and they third party everything. Okay. We don't do that. We buy it. We own it. We do everything. We build it. We lease it. We do all the property management and we have investors and some of those investors, you know, we leverage our platform as the vehicle to, um, increase value and we're one of the larger privately owned full fully integrated owners and operators in the country interesting what was the size of the company when you joined them so what was the size when we don't like how many how many so employees probably i would say probably in the 80s maybe 70s 80s so, so it was, a real, it was is, a real it was a real business though at that point it was a real business totally so what i would say is What's typically, what, what's really grown is our asset value. We've been recycling capital over time. So since then, our asset value has, you know, probably grown 30, 40%. That's what's really been the big growth since I joined. We, we, we got, we were very, we're still entrepreneurial by nature, even though, you know, we're trying to get to what I would call enterprise scale, yeah. one of our goals. We were entrepreneurial by nature, um, you know, really either family and friends or our own money internally. And then we really grew and we started partnering with large institutions to a point where, you know, in 2016, we bought a $400 million portfolio. So 
the, you know, we took like this family run business and we're still family run and scaled it and, you know, grew the asset base and, you know, protective of margin along the way. Now you guys have grown through the last, you know, 10, 11 years of, of huge economic upturn and boom. Yep. And, and now we've hit this crazy brick wall with the economy where they just announced today 25 and a half million unemployed in the US already and we're just getting started and 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 uh, the weird thing that I've now noticed like I had a client in Colombia that's um, I'm coaching the CEO and, and, and he's got 800 employees three weeks ago they said all 800 employees were in one office one building never would have allowed anybody to work from home a week later, 700 people were working from home. And two weeks later, all 800 people working from home. And now they're wondering whether they need to ever go back to a location-based business. Yeah. So I, being in commercial real estate, I'll comment on that, right? Yeah. I don't own, I don't own office buildings, but if I did, I'd be, Shitting that would your be pants. A, a con, I would be concerned. But what my take is, so we had to do the same, right? I had 60 of my 120 people were all working from home, but 60 didn't have laptops had desktops mm -hmm. and most people didn't travel. And so how are we getting these people up and running? And so that was a huge process to be able to work remotely. Now that we're doing it, we're being very productive. We're efficient. We have department heads are running zoom calls with their departments every day. We're connecting, but I think that, you know, I, I just listened to Kevin Leary talk about that. He's never going back to offices. He's going to stay remote. He's going to save the 11%. I would tell you, so at DLC, there are certain things, we own assets all over the country where there are certain roles that we could have remote work previously. And we were one of probably the most hesitant to do that. And we sure. didn't do that. Yep. So we've been really focused on culture for the last seven, eight years, like culture is everything for us. And so we call our culture like Nike has just do it. Ours is hashtag success. And it, and so we feel that, and I don't know necessarily to quantify it, but we feel that the human connection and team dynamics probably outweigh that 11% that Kevin yeah. O'Leary is talking about. And I'm with gonna, you. And I believe that the human connection and, and team dynamics, and maybe I'm biased because I own real estate. And so there's, there's that. And I want people to use real estate and not work from home. I, I recognize I could be biased in that sense. However, I do feel, you know, I'm eating crow. I'm eating my own stuff where, you know, at the moment, our, our position is we're going to go back to the office when it's safe to do so, because we feel that the human connection and team dynamics, you cannot replace that digitally. Yep. And special things happen when you do that. Yep. Special I, things that potentially have, monet, have monetization as well. Yeah, I agree as well. Do you see any anything changing in the investment landscape in the commercial real estate sector? So I, I would say certainly. So first off, there's no doubt in any recessionary time, there's values get depressed. So you're going to be have that opportunity mm -hmm. on you know to buy. Yeah, right. You're going to have to be in a place where you think there's going to be users because you're making money on the rent. So are there, you know who are the tenant, where is the tenant demand for, if you're an office owner for, if that guy's going to work remotely, what is, you know, who are you going to fill that with? And the wealthy, invest, the wealthy investors always have money they want to invest too. So you're probably sitting totally. in a pretty good position. The shopping centers, you know, what stores are going to want to grow. That's certainly, 
a concern. I would tell you that the fabric of commercial real estate right now is, you know, interesting. You, you know, you have this, do this, this should tenants pay rent and where of the position that the lease is pretty clear. Everyone realizes that even during this time, the lease obligates tenants to pay rent. That said, you know, a lot of landlords, both in office and in retail and other commercial sectors, there's tenants that haven't paid rent and that's our revenue. And so we're working deals with them. And when you have the local mom and pops, whether it's a local small accounting office in an office building or a small pizza guy, I think landlords are working with them. When you have these multinational companies, if they, and there's some out there, I won't name names that have taken a position that they, they're going to fight landlords on their obligation to pay rent and major international multinational investment grade companies. And if you have a place, and I keep saying, like if you have a place where there's a time when things get bad, where one of those companies is going to take the position, I'm not going to pay. Well, what does that do for the value? Because the value is based on the credit worthiness of those tenants. And if they're not paying, then the credit, their credit worthiness isn't there. And so I think there's going to be some, there's going to be built in risk mitigation into prices based on this, right? Because those deals, a lot of those deals are not the most lucrative deals. You do those deals because when the world goes nuclear, they're investment grade and they're pay the rent. Mm, Interesting. That makes sense too. What do you think is going to happen with the shopping malls? I've got some ideas on, on some of it. I'll, I'll give you my ideas after I hear yours are. So, so I think, so I would caveat, it's not broad stroke, you know, it depends on where they are too, right? It's like, yeah. So enclosed malls are very different. We own open air centers. We own strip centers. Yeah. So enclosed malls are a little different. I think, you know, there's certainly going to be enclosed malls that don't open, reopen to me. That I hope is an opportunity for me because I operate like open air centers in markets that are still open because I have essential retailers like Walmarts and Targets are my tenants and Sam's Club and Costco's. And there'll be some healthy retailers in those malls that are going to need a home. And maybe they'll be my future tenants, which would be very opportunistic for me. Um, I think the enclosed malls are going to be challenged right there. They're too big already. Yeah. Um, And now I think the ones in good markets like in Scottsdale and Vancouver, they're going to be fine. It's probably the, tertiary markets um, where they were overbuilt and the sales weren't there pre-COVID. And I think it's going to be interesting. The open air centers, and again, I'm biased, are a better position. They're more essential retailer based and they probably weren't overbuilt to the sense of the enclosed mall world. So places where Sherwin-Williams is, right? A a tenant I used to work for. Sure. I think those centers are going to be fine long run. I do too. So. Yeah, I think those are also easier ones to fill too, where they can, totally. you know, each, each individual unit can be placed into something. I think the, I was at a um, Rackspace's head office down near San Antonio and it was really intriguing. It was an old shopping mall and Rackspace, this massive company came in and took the entire shopping mall as their head office. Yeah, totally. Um, they, kept, they kept the escalators, they kept the food court. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, so I think we'll see some of those kinds of things being repurposed where, you know, like Amazon comes in and takes over an entire shopping yeah, mall that, as that- corporate office space. That's totally happened. The only thing I would say about real estate is that it is extremely capital intensive. Mm-hmm. And so that, those are real CapEx infrastructure costs to do that. And the only way to do that, to make that work, to do the Amazon deal, to do that you know, ridiculously multi, multi-million dollar deal is the return the landlord gets, the developer gets on that is through rent. 
Right. So the rent has to be high enough that it makes it worthwhile to spend the money to do that. Yeah, I don't think the I think the commercial real estate, the people that are owning those right now might take a bath or be selling out of that. But I think yeah. you're right. I think the space that you're in is going to continue to do quite well. Yeah. The um I'm just curious what ends up happening to them. Me too. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. Tell me about your podcast and, and what was it that got you started doing that? So in my world, I think um, you know, marketing, it's business to business, right? My customers are Starbucks and Target and the local pizza guy. And, and from a marketing perspective, there's been this thing in commercial real estate, kind of like the property sell themselves and the there's property level marketing, but you don't see Super Bowl commercials with commercial real estate companies. And there's like fortune, you know, thousand sure. companies that are, that are, that, you know, own commercial real estate. And so I think that from a corporate branding and marketing, there hasn't been a lot done in my space. And there's white space to be done there, really get your name out there. And, you know, we've really increased our digital presence and we thought another avenue would be podcast. And so um, the premise of the show is uh, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. So someone might say like, you know, they put Starbucks over here and I say, we bring you they and how it happened. Mm. And so that might be someone from the corporate real estate function at Starbucks. That might be someone who was involved in environmental. It might be a city official who was involved in approving it. It might be the landlord. We bring on different people to talk about different perspectives on how that store ended up in your neighborhood. That's really cool. I was being groomed years ago. Uh, my mentor was being groomed as the COO at Starbucks. So I was down there every quarter. He would come up awesome. to my office every quarter. We had calls every month for about two years. And one of the things I asked Greg in the early days was how do they pick their locations? And I didn't realize it, but if you think about what he said, it seems to be so true. In the first 20 years of them building locations, almost every single Starbucks store was on the right-hand side of the road as you drove towards downtown. So they were all on the side of the road that you would be driving to work to be able to stop it. your car, get out of the car, grab coffee. You didn't have to, you never had to cross the street to go get your coffee on the way to work. Totally. So on the way home from work, they were always on the inconvenient side of the street, but you weren't stopping to get coffee at 5.30. Totally. I still think that they're, they're very much focused on the it's going fuck. to work side. That was so brilliant. And then the second yeah. thing he told me, I said, like, why doesn't Starbucks advertise? He said, we do, but you don't recognize it as advertising. We open more and more stores to brand all the other stores. Totally. We just don't spend money on marketing and advertising. We know that every retail location supports every retail location. I'm like, fuck me. You guys are really got this thing dialed. Yeah, they're amazing. Who's, who else is doing interesting in the, in the real estate space right now? Like, like the brands. Um, the, the brand. So from, from a, you know, I think from a, the brand perspective, I think that on a totally, you know, they're not a tenant of mine, but I'm always fascinated. You know, I think Nike's doing, you know, doing interesting. They got, they just built that huge store in Manhattan where, mm. you know, they got all this technology in the store where you, yeah. there's no one who goes behind the, the wall to grab your shoes they give you a code, you go to a locker, you set it up beforehand and your shoes are waiting to try on and you can run around the track. They really got this experience. So I think Nike's doing like a really cool job of, you know, forward thinking the store of the future. Um, cool. I think in, you know, in my space, I think as, you know, Walmart is fascinating to me. 
they are, you know, to, because I think what a lot of people don't appreciate is the local mom and pop to, to do something innovative in a store is simple logistically challenging, not simple, but easier, but challenging from a capital perspective to make a move and do something with 4,000 stores and do it in 12 months is a, you know, hundreds of thousands of employees have to be on the same page to get this right. And so they've, they've really done an amazing job with this buy online pickup in store, which has been fascinating for them because the shopping center industry has shown that when someone does BOPUS, as they call it, buy online pickup in store, 85% of those companies, 85% of those customers buy an additional product in the store that they wouldn't have otherwise purchased. Interesting. Well, that's interesting. Right. And then, and the value of those products are typically more than what they purchased online. Yeah. It's almost like the gift card when you, you know, you, you buy the hundred dollar gift card, but when you're in the restaurant, you end up spending $130. You got it. Yeah. So those two, I think Target's done a great job. They, you know, people thought they were crazy. They were going to spend billions in renovating all their stores. They did it and now they're printing it and they've killed it. So I think those are some, those are two tenants of mine. Nike's not a tenant of mine, but I just think what they did was so innovating and it's a brand that I really enjoy. Is Simon Malls still a big company in the retail mall Yeah, space so they're or- the leader in the enclosed mall space, no doubt. They just made a huge perk. They've made, they've done some really innovative things. Um, they purchased the one of the top high-end mall companies recently, huh. Taubman. So they did that. They also have been buying distressed retailers who are tenants in their properties. Whoa, interesting. So they bought Forever 21. Whoa. So that's an alternate revenue stream. Now they have sales of Forever 21. And interesting. now they've protected their rental stream. Yeah. That because they were going, they were they were filing bankruptcy. So they protected like their a, existing almost like income. a loss leader in a way, right? Yeah. So they protected that, but they also now have this new income stream of owning the retailer. So uh, interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. The vertically integrated malls. They were a client of mine when when we were building one eight hundred got junk. Um, we really wanted some some corporate clients, and we went after Simon Malls to do all the junk removal from all their store cleanouts. When a oh, that's very smart. Flipping over, yeah. So we did a lot of work for them and for public storage, and then waste management as well. Um, Tell me about, about the people coming into your industry. Why, why do you think people want to join the commercial industry? And what do you look for when you're bringing people into your company? So I think it's a great topic. So I think commercial real estate doesn't do a great job of marketing to universities. And so, you know, I don't think anyone like graduates college and that's like, there's not a lot of people unless they have like family ties that want to get into that. Mm-hmm. And even more so with my clients in the retail side, right? I don't know if there, there's not a lot of college kids who are like dying to be in the store management training program. Yeah. We don't know anything think, about it. And I think those, or they might know about being a store manager at Walmart, yes. but they don't want to do that per se, even yeah. though that's a pretty Walmart's an, an exception, right? They, they have 250 employees that you're running and it's potentially a hundred million dollar business when you're running one store. It's a real deal. And, uh, it, it, and it's a, you know, a well compensated job for that. But I think that the, what it's the people ask the biggest risk to the industry, whether it's pandemic, online retailing, the biggest risk to commercial real estate and retail real estate in particular is human capital. You know, how do we fight to bring in the brightest and the most talented into our industry? Uh, 
when you're fighting with tech and everyone wants to work for a tech company and all these things, I think is a real challenge, especially those are branded a lot better to universities than us. And so it's a challenge when we bring in people and we bring in people into our, you know, we, we have a pretty strong millennial cohort. Uh, we focus on the intangibles. I made a post today on LinkedIn, literally today, that was uh, uh, a call to action to parents that, you know, one of the questions I ask college graduates is, you know, what's the biggest pressure moment you've been involved in that has nothing to do with school, sports, or extracurricular activities? Yep. Because I want to see how they operate in uncontrolled environments where there's no rules and how do they handle those scenarios and... And where they don't have um, mom and dad solving it for them. You got it. And so, um, I, I, so we focus on the intangibles. You know, what's the biggest adversity you've ever faced? I don't want to be the first sign of adversity. Yeah. You know, I want you to be able to have a framework in which you can handle challenges. Um, and I bet those college graduates who graduated in, you know, call it December or May of last year that entered the workforce last year are now dealing, working in a company right now who who had adversity, who were in pressure-filled scenarios, they're, they're able to navigate these waters to the best of their abilities, whereas others are paralyzed. So those are some things. We focused on the intangibles. How, you know, what are you like in a team, right? Are you, are you prepared to sacrifice yourself for the greater good of the team? Well, and I, even, I even call those the core behavioral traits. Like you're actually yeah. looking for what really makes these people tick. You got it. Because they may not have they may not have skills because they haven't actually worked in, yeah. in roles yet. But but the core DNA that they have has been there since they were kids. I, I'm so less concerned about skills because they're all learnable and commoditized. Yeah. I'm more you know, do you have the ability to connect with people? Yeah. What is your community? Can you connect? I don't care what role you're in. If you don't have the ability to connect with others, it's going to be a challenge. And so we talk we talk about the communication skills, right? One the first question I ask most college graduates is tell me about you, nothing to do with work or school. And a lot of kids struggle. And then they'll say, you know, well, I like to do this. I like to do this. And, I, and then I'll go, I, I don't want to know what you like to do. I got it. Those are your interests. Tell me about you. And if you can't communicate who you are to somebody, I think that really speaks volumes about your communication skills. And I would challenge all any college graduates out there to be able to work on their communication skills, have the ability to connect with somebody. The, you know, the, the it's also the kid, their own introspection, right? Their ability yeah. to just even examine themselves. Self-awareness for sure. Yeah. When, when the kid, the, the, the kid uh, who can say, well, here's what wakes me up in the morning. This is the things that I value. This is the things I'm excited about going into the workforce. That person, that's an exciting answer to me that they like to, you know, hang out with their friends and family on the weekends is not. How about the, the role that you're in right now and thinking about some of your investors, do you, do you deal with the stress level of some of the investors at all? Do your investors ever? Yeah. So for sure. And so, do you have that same level that a retail broker might have where there's a market correction and their investors are freaking out or worried? Or is your uh, yeah, I mean, we're in it together. So don't, don't forget. Yeah. So that we're not just managing money. Our money's in there. Yeah. Right. That's the difference That's is like difference. We're, our money's in the investment, right? We, we don't buy, when we say we buy something, we're buying something. So we're putting our money out, in we're and we might be JV partnership with somebody else. So 
I have a team that manages the investment. So we have our chief investment officer, myself, and we have kind of, I would say half the organization kind of flows up to us. Generally, we have our legal team, our chief administrative officer that has a piece. But so I have all the people who are operationally focused on our end, which is our, the people who are dealing with the tenants and making the deals, our sales force, right? The sales force, they report up to me. I have our construction team. They're also dealing with the tenants, the Sherwin Williams construction manager. I have our property management team. They're interfacing with the tenants. They're managing the properties. I have our marketing team. And so they're working with our clients as well. And so investors, what they want from me first and foremost is they're looking for visibility of how are their customers and our customers, what are they thinking about right now? What's going on? Because they, they're not touching the customers, whereas all my groups are talking to Starbucks, they're talking to Target and Walmart on a daily basis, the pizza guys. So they're looking, the numbers are easy. They're not talking to me about the numbers too much. They're talking, they want the context and the story of what's going on. What's Starbucks thinking these days? How is Starbucks operating? Please, you know, that's what they're looking for from us. Got it. That's interesting as well. How about you and your growth? Where are you growing over the years? Where have you had to scale? So I would say, you know, the biggest thing for me is I think in general, I was um, a really good tactician. Give me a task. Go sell this. Go do this. You know, I remember we had a property in Jacksonville, Florida. I said, you know what? This is a really tough one. Finding tenants. I went, went down there for three weeks, working on weekends, not coming home until I have signed leases. Right? So tactically pretty good. I got into managing people and I, you know, I think that was a skill of mine. I have the ability to connect with people. And I think that I, you know, I had a lot of good coaches growing up in sports. My father, you know, my mother left when I was two and it was just me and my dad for a while until he got remarried. And so I had, you know, good parenting. And so I had good coaching management and I always was fascinated on leadership and read a ton on leadership and management. I think what really started to really on my end, what, which was the, the piece that I needed to work on was being a lot more strategic versus tactical. Cause like I said, I grew up in this, like, you know, give me a task. I can, I'll do anything. Yeah. But when you have to pull one lever and knock down 30 pins, that's a different mindset, a different thinking. And that's very different. And when, Um, and that's, that's been the thing that I've been focused on the most is how do you make something strategic decisions, business strategy, and implement them when you're not the tech tactician. Cause even when you're, when you're managing, right, I have like 60 plus people that at some way, shape or form flow up to me, even when you're managing a team of like five, six people, you're much more tactically involved. Sure. Right. Then when you're talking about big picture company strategy and we're trying to take this company to enterprise scale, that, that, that's very different thinking and mindset and operating than, it, than being so tactical. So that's when you talk about my growth and where I'm focused, it's probably right now what I'm focused on the most. I got I to gotta go back to something you said, which just kind of rocked me and, and it was on the personal side you had a different story than everybody else. Everybody else, it was the dad that left. Yeah, yeah. Did you have brothers and sisters and? So it was just me and my dad till I was nine. My my dad got remarried. 
uh, that stepmom, my mom, and yeah. uh, they had two kids from that. So I have two brothers. Um, but yeah, before that was just me and my dad in a one bedroom apartment. He slept in the couch. I slept in the bedroom. Do you, do you remember those lessons growing up? Do you remember that as like everyone has that? Vividly, was, that was your so normal, my, right? vividly, vividly, because it was pretty raw and real. And my dad was, he took parenting beyond serious. He was like a, put a lot of pressure on me and I thrived under that versus the kid who might've like sure. broke. I kind of yeah. was like, Oh, F you, you want me to get all A's? I'm going to get all A pluses. Right. Versus, right. He was, you know, a B plus was big problem in my household when I was in, you know, up until college. So even in second, third grade, when it was just me and my dad, it was a big problem. Yeah. Not being the best in sports, like losing a wrestling match, that was going to be a bad night for me. Are you and your dad close? Very. Good. Fucking A, man. Say, say hi to your dad. Tell him that just I'm a dad and fucking massive kudos for him to do what he would have had to have done at that age to give you a good life and to suck it up and tough. I've been divorced and done the single parent thing at times in a totally different scenarios, but to do it with a two-year-old, fucking A, man. Good for him and good for you. Um, I spent a, spent a day inside of a maximum security prison last year to go in. 20 CEOs went in and spent time with 60 prisoners and one of the guys who was my age, he went into prison at 18. He was 52. He hasn't seen a blade of grass, a flower, or a tree in 34 years, and he's getting out next year. We were talking about, you know, being a dad, and, and I said, you know, I've been hard on my kids at times. He goes, dude, he goes, the world is way fucking harder on your kids than you will have ever been. So he said, anything you've done has set them up for success. And that's a good line. Yeah, it was a really powerful lesson. It was cool. Um, you and your partners. How do you yeah. guys work together? What do you guys have as kind of meeting rhythms and how do you connect and stay connected with them? So our executive management team uh, would meet pre-COVID every two weeks. Um, I would say it's pretty strategic. We talk about one of two things, business strategy or company culture. That's what we talk about. So company culture is really about the people, the teams, what's going mm -hmm. on, and then business strategy, obviously. Mm -hmm. Right now we're meeting daily, 8am to 9am daily on Zoom. Um, the operations of our business have been really compromised right now, you know. Sure. Uh, and so really trying to navigate those waters, you know, how do you operate a partially open shopping center, right? So do you need excess, more security to prevent looting, lighting, right? Our revenue stream comes from continually leasing space. How do we make new deals in the sales process during this time period? Um, all those things, right? You know, what are we doing? You know, I got construction projects in certain states where they're coming open and we can do, we never were shut down. And then in New York where we were shut down. And so we're talking about all these things on a daily basis. Um, cool. um, so we're meeting, our rhythm is daily right now, 8 to 9 a.m. Have you guys, have you guys shifted focus from like, okay, you know, disaster crisis to, okay, let's drive it and grow forward now. Like we know yeah. it's an issue, but we're going forward. Yeah. So I would say totally. So we were in crisis pandemic mode. And is your um, office is your off your office is New York too, right? Yeah. So we're shut down. Everyone's fucking, right you're now. like in the epicenter of it all too. Yeah, I am. So we went, I would say. I would tell you, I, you know, what, depending on what you think of what is crisis mode. So I would say that we well, were what, like, just the, it's, you know, we're always talking about the fucking COVID-19 versus, okay, yeah, we get it, but we got a business to run too. Yeah. So we were, 
a hundred, you know, the first two weeks of like the last two weeks of March, first week of April, it was only that. Yeah. Right. Cause we had to get, we had a lot of tactical things that happened, sure. created new strategies in minutes sure. to try to handle what was coming to us. Yeah. Um, and we have a lot of things going on in operating in a COVID-19 world right now that are what I would say is dealing with the crisis. Yeah. I would say that, you know, probably half the calls each week are dealing with COVID-19 things. And then half the things are growth and business. business. Right. Yeah, that's the shift that I'm seeing with most companies. It's interesting. We've got a, a COO Alliance event next week. By the time people are listening, it will have already happened. But the theme is sales, marketing, and PR. And it really is to shift all of our members' focus now into, you know, we get it, we're dealing with it, but we still have companies to run and to grow and to build. And and how do you do that and communicate that way when some people might still be a little freaked out? It's it's also there's nothing wrong with selling. So we've been we've marketing. been pretty focused on our sales team to not stop through all this and really right. tried to take away any responsibility with COVID-19 things from them, from them. They're doing some, but, and focus on new business. And for us, one of the, you know, one of the opportunities for us, right. Where the sales team is, we're trying to say, listen, we're looking for the entrepreneur or the company that's looking that can look past this. There's going to be, you know, you know, buyers that just can't get past this. And what we're doing is, we're trying to say that like in the contract, nothing starts until after yep. we want to lock in the deal, but nothing's we're, we're not, you, you can't open a store right now. Right. right. So we're, 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 but like, I want, you know, how Let's do we sign a deal to, how do we sign a deal today and get committed on yep. a 10 year lease, but it's not going to start till 2021. That that's where, where we're focused from that end. Um, you know, marketing, we've been doing a lot of different marketing. I think PR will be interesting to see what the Alliance says because, you know, we've talked and we've talked to some of our partners who are major corporations who I talked to one, I can't mention who, where we actually signed a lease during this time. And it's a big deal, big national company. And they do not want to put out a press release right now because they are, they're like one we don't want to be tone deaf to what's going on, but two, whether it's paid PR or non-paid PR, it's going to get, it's wasted time and productivity. It's going to get lost in everything that's going on COVID-19. How do you get it? How do you get real airtime on something? I, I, I think we're there now that it's okay to get, to start going into the positive press because the media, the media is tired of the old stories now. And people are starving for the Oprah feel-good stories. So um, we know that the hospitals can manage it. We know that we have got enough ventilators. We know that people are dying and have died. We, like, we know that we're going to be reopening. So the, the if it bleeds, it leads story for a while is the story. And then all of a sudden it gets tired. But you need, it's like we need to now have the story of the bodies being recovered and, and hope. We need to have, find the, the kid who survived it. We need like. So just, I don't disagree. I just, I, I just, what I would challenge you on is, I don't know, is the media, maybe the consumer wants that. I, I don't know if the media is ready and thinks that and is ready to. The media started, that. the media is, the media, there's a natural, okay. it's kind of the hero's journey. The media is starting to turn. They'll still go after all the old stuff and they'll find new old stuff, but there is enough of the other. There's also other, there's also, this isn't just about getting PR now. This is about understanding PR for the next five years too, right? Yeah. So it's, it's understanding how to build stuff and leverage it. I've got a client right now that I'm coaching who is preparing to sell his company right now. 
He's in a very strong position. His growth is growing like crazy right now. So we're going to leverage PR as a way to increase his brand value so that the buyers are going, oh my God, you're everywhere. Look at all this press you're getting. We're kind of wrapping him up in a Tiffany box and a white ribbon. You know, we're strategically using PR. Interesting. So there's other people that use PR as a way to attract employees. You know, you attract, you, you, you get press about your company that talks about how great you are as an organization, how you're taking care of people, how you're taking care of customers. So that's what we've done. That's what it we've becomes, done. Yeah, it becomes third-party credibility to build your brand. And then you take that to university campuses to recruit with, right? Yeah, totally. All right, last question. If we were to go back to the 22-year-old Chris Risa, who's finishing college, university, getting ready to start out in his career, whatever. What word of advice would you give yourself back then that you know to be true now, but you didn't really know at 22? Take bigger risks. <laughs> at, you know, I would have I taken, in both career and personally, I would have taken a lot more shots throughout my old 20s. Uh, I think, you know, you go to college. You know, I came from a blue-collar place where, you know, the prestigious jobs were teachers and police officers and firemen, safe, conservative. And so I think I would have taken a lot more shots and I would have really taken a lot more risks because, you know, failing at 22 is very different than when you're failing at 45 and you have yep. three kids and a house and a mortgage and all that. So I would have taken shots. That was the best word of advice that I was lucky enough to listen to my dad when I was young. I was 20 years old. I was looking at a 67 page franchise agreement with college pro painters. And my dad said, there's no better time in your life to go bankrupt. Give it a try. Do everything they tell you in the manual and see if you make it work. And totally. I was like, You're right. I, got, I don't have any fucking money anyway. So if I go exactly. bankrupt, I, I had nothing. I got lucky with that. Cause I think most kids wouldn't listen. Chris Risa, thank you so much for sharing with us on the second command podcast. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you. It was awesome, man. Appreciate it. Thanks. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.